Welcome to Dementia Resilience with Jill Lorenz, a candid conversation as we learn about types of dementias, such as Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, frontal temporal, and Lewy body, and the effects on the people we love. Jill's years of dedication and experience help you adapt, overcome obstacles, and find positive outcomes. It's time for Dementia Resilience with Jill Lorenz. Hello, my friends. I'm really excited today because I have a good friend in the studio, and you all know her if you've been listeners for a while, Clarilee Charlton from Cats Look and Honorado Law Firm here in Denver, Colorado, has been my go-to forever for my clients because, uh, Clarilee, you've been so helpful with everybody from everything they've needed, from trust to POAs to just asking a question, what is this, what is that? So today, we're just going to go through some of the calls that you've gotten and some of the questions that people have sent us that you've helped us with. So welcome to the show again. Thank you so much, Jill. We've come a long way since your days um, on the radio. We sure have. (laughs) Wow. And since then, I have listeners now in all 50 states and 82 countries. Wow. Congratulations. Isn't that wild? Yeah. So, you know, as we have talked in the past, we get kind of strange questions from people sometimes. Right. Not so strange questions, common thread questions. So where should we start? Yeah. And you and I chatted kind of ahead of this. And I know you collected and I collected some of the, you know, kind of top 10 questions that we seem to get over and over. And right. so hopefully what we're going to be discussing today will give everyone kind of just a good summary and answer some of those burning questions because there's so much misinformation or variations of information out there. And of course, I, I think we both know that each family is so unique. So mm-hmm. even what we're talking about today might be slightly tweaked for a particular family, just given their particular circumstances. But hopefully we can focus on some broad-based answers to these questions. And it seemed like a big theme really surrounded um, that moment for a client or their family between competent and incompetent. And, you know, that can be a whole continuum. Um, They might be competent in some areas and incompetent in others. And it Mm -hmm. takes a while um, for us to even understand when that full incompetency sets in. And then what do we do as a loved one to help our client make sure they're um, not diminishing their assets and Uh, You had a question uh, from someone. You said, well, what do I do if my husband just sold the house from underneath me? You know, what can I do? Right. So I thought maybe this morning we should uh, focus on that question of what happens, what should I do in advance if I can? Mm -hmm. Um, So one of the, the issues that we had been discussing was, you know, when is it time to be thinking about getting your legal issues in order and mm-hmm. like when is it too late right and the capacity level to make certain documents depends on the document um, so you don't necessarily need to be able to balance a checkbook or be able to understand the nuances of your disease to know that you want your spouse or your child to make decisions for you. It's a different level of competency for different things. Right. Um, so certainly if your family member um, is fully competent, you know, maybe you and your spouse are listening to this and you say, you know, we've been thinking about maybe putting powers of attorney in place, but 
you know, is it too soon? I don't think it's ever too soon. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I have 18-year-olds. When they turn 18, they're headed off to college. Do a power of attorney because your parents don't own you anymore mm-hmm. and can't just automatically make decisions. So if you're in your 50s or 60s or maybe you just received a diagnosis that maybe early stages of dementia um, are in your future, um, you should absolutely get documents in place nominating who you would want to take over for you in the event you actually become incapacitated. Mm -hmm. Uh, Some clients choose to have that person start acting for them right away. Um, But most of us say, well, today I'm fine. I'll I'll keep balancing my checkbook, filing my taxes, you know, deciding on my level of care. But down the road, if I can't do that any longer, then I nominate my spouse or I nominate my child or I nominate my best friend um, to do that. And it's important to note that that doesn't have to be somebody necessarily in your household. It's kind of helpful if it is, but it's not pertinent that it is. It needs to be a person that you trust. So if you know you have a history of children fighting over what they're going to get when you die – Maybe choosing one of them isn't the best idea. Maybe you choose your best friend or an aunt or an uncle or something like that, right? Absolutely. And nowadays, it doesn't even matter if your agent is out of state. Um, So often a a parent thinks, well, just because my kid, one kid lives down the street and another one's, you know, in California, I have to name the one that's down the street. Not at all. You need to name who you feel most comfortable. Um, And sometimes dividing and conquering the task is good too. So naming one child as a medical power of attorney and the other as a financial mm-hmm. um, so that they can each manage specific tasks um, for your overall benefit. I want you to get into what those different powers of attorney are. But before we do that, I want to talk about that competency level because it's a big deal for people. Uh, I get so many clients, clearly where their person is angry Um, they're not cooperative, they're right on a cusp of can they make their own decisions or can they not make their own decisions. Um, One I can think of off the top, we had a situation where a person can't bathe themselves, can't feed themselves, can't go to the grocery store, is not aware of somebody stealing money from them, um, really cannot do any of the activities of daily living for themselves. But if you talk to them, they sound like they're okay. Right. And trying to get somebody into a neurologist to discover what's going on in that brain is not always easy or possible. And families just don't know what to do. They're scratching their head. They're pulling their hair out. So where – I mean there's – that's a loaded question and we really have to take it case by case. But uh, in a case where somebody can talk a lot and seems like they can make decisions, but if you really dig deep – In a mini mental status, they could answer every question. What year is it? Who is the president? When's Mm -hmm. your birthday? Can you draw this picture? But when you say, how can you manage your own care? How can you you pay for your own care? Can you put a plan together and meet me next week? And they come with nothing. Where's that competency line? That's a tough one. Yeah, and it's going to vary on a case-by-case basis. It's also going to kind of – your reaction to that question is going to – 
vary based on what your person is saying no to. So are they saying no to going to the doctor or are they saying no to you managing their bank account? The or, reaction is going to be different. Or moving Moving, to a absolutely. So I think it's good for listeners to understand the parameters of a power of attorney because okay. it sounds good like, oh, you've got power of attorney, you can make decisions, blah, blah, blah. Right. Unfortunately, powers of attorney don't give you the capacity to forcibly remove someone from the home and go drop them off at a facility. Um, unfortunately, you'll likely need to become someone's guardian um, or conservator. The conservator typically is the money manager. Guardian is the body manager. Mm -hmm. um, some states call the call that the same thing. Like California, I think they use the word conservator for both body taking care of and money taking care of. Okay. Um, but that is a court-appointed procedure where the court actually will determine and force your family member to undergo testing to determine whether they are competent. And if you are someone's guardian, then you can get the assistance of, for instance, the police or APS to forcibly come and pick your person up and take them to um, the, the living facility that they need to be residing in. Okay. Simply with the power of attorney, oftentimes won't let you exercise that level of authority over your person. Okay. What if you do have a neurologist with a diagnosis? Even if you have a diagnosis, that diagnosis will be helpful in you getting the guardianship. Okay. Um, that would be a piece of evidence that you would present in that proceeding. Um, but just a power of attorney and, a, and an evaluation together is likely for a lot of communities not going to be enough for them to say, okay, we will forcibly hold your person without their consent. Okay. Are guardianships expensive? I'm sure that would be my next question from a... They uh, can be, particularly if they're contested. Um, if it's very obvious that the, the person is incapacitated, you already have the reports that you can submit, um, and all the family members are on the same page with regard to who's going to serve as guardian, mm -hmm. they can be pretty straightforward. Now, that doesn't mean inexpensive uh, because there still are going to be court filing fees. You may need to hire an attorney to assist you through the process, um, which in some states can be, you know, two to three thousand dollars for a non-contested. Mm -hmm. If now brother and sister both want to be guardian, they say, well, you're not going to be it. I'm going to be it. And there has the there's this fighting among the families. Right. Maybe the testing hasn't yet occurred to know whether or not the person is incapacitated. So you have to undergo that that entire process, um, that can be ten to $20,000. Okay. It just really depends. Um, but I think if you can have at least the powers of attorney, which are very inexpensive, mm -hmm. uh, there's lots of forms online, and I've got some comments about that in, in a little bit, but <laughs> um, that can at least give the family some level of control when they're seeing some of these more minor events. Um, it might allow them to go and remove most of the money out of the checking account to protect it and just leave, you know, a, a, a threshold amount 
so that the person doesn't feel as though they can't, you know, go to Starbucks for their coffee. But you're protecting and isolating funds in different accounts potentially just so there isn't that accidental slip up. That's Um, that's great. And I'm glad you clarified that because we get a lot of questions on that. And I think think you made that really clear. So if you have any um, pushback from that person, they can talk for themselves. They can say, I'm okay. This person, sh-, you know, and a judge isn't per se going to question them and say, you know, uh, answer this, 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 or this on a troubleshooting. He, they're just going to take the information they have and make a decision. So it could be a little difficult. So I love that if if you have most of the family members in agreement on what's going to happen, then it would make that guardianship a little more viable and probably more um, not only accessible, but but able to push it through. Yes, absolutely. If you have the whole family on board with this is what needs to happen, it doesn't mean that the court isn't going to still ensure that there's been a professional evaluation mm-hmm. um, by, you know, a medical professional. You know, the court might ask the person a few questions, but certainly they don't pretend to be medical professionals. They um, require a neuropsych evaluation of the individual um, so mm-hmm. that they have that report. And mm-hmm. and as you know, sometimes it's really on the cusp for a lot of these people. And you say, gosh, it would it would be, we can see from the outside that it would be in their best interest. But psychologically, they may just not have reached that level that they really can't be doing things for themselves. Right. And so unfortunately, you find yourself in situations like your one client who emailed and said, hey, my husband sold the house from underneath me. What what can I do? Right. If he's the only one on title and he finds a buyer, the buyer doesn't know that he's incapacitated because he can talk for 45 minutes and it looks sounds great. At the end of 45 minutes, he goes on repeat again, but the buyer didn't know that. And so they shell over the funds or whatever. um, And all of a sudden, you find yourself in this weird situation. And unfortunately, unless the buyer knew that there was some questions as to this person's capacity or or ability to sign, they are deemed to be uh, in rightful title. Um, you know, they you go down to a pawn shop to to buy I don't know some camping equipment, and you know there's nothing on it that says this camping equipment is stolen. So right. you, as a buyer, you say, "Hey, I, I need a tent. I'm buying this." And, and then later on, you find out, "Oh, that was you know stolen or whatever." You are in rightful possession, and now the only course of action is against that person who sold that asset. So you're essentially saying to your spouse. I could sue you for this, um, but we don't want to go down that that road. Right, so. and I will tell you that particular case, I don't know why the wife wasn't on the house to begin with or even if she was, sure. but that was a property in the mountains on about 57 acres Gosh, with a 3 or $4 million dollar house. Oh my gosh. Yeah. It looked a little bit like the Yellowstone house on the TV show. Oh, wow. And they, <laughs> and he sold it for 700,000. Oh yeah. Well, and you what know, a mess. in that type of situation, you kind of say, well, you know, was the deal too good to be true? Is there some sort of recourse against this buyer um, for, you know, taking advantage of someone in that situation. Yeah. I don't think that's really what happened. But, um, sure. yeah, you know, you can get in those kinds of situations. Well, and here's a, a piece of advice for anyone who is power of attorney 
um, for someone, or maybe they are the guardian already, um, you should record your power of attorney or your guardianship certificate in the public records so that when the title search is completed, that will show up and at least trigger some questions at oh, closing nice. um, about the fact that, hey, FYI, the person on title, there's some questionable mental capacity there. Um, so if you have gotten that and, and your loved one still is on title, um, I heartily recommend that get recorded in the public records. You know, that's just a good idea overall. Just to, just to, just put it in with your local um, city clerk's office, right? Uh, when you begin taking taking over control for your person. Okay. If I have full capacity and I just sign powers of attorney and I don't assume my loved ones are going to have to do anything for me for the next 10 years, mm -hmm. I wouldn't record it because you might change it. Uh, I also like to keep certain things as private as we can. Okay. Um, but if you as an agent have just begun utilizing the power of attorney on behalf of your loved one, that would be the time to record it. Okay. What other questions did we get in this area? Well, another um, question really was about um, what type of estate planning documents might my loved one need? And what's the difference between using a will and a trust? Right. Because um, a lot of clients say, oh, I, I must need a trust. Uh, one benefit of a trust over a will is you can pre-title assets before you pass away in the name of your trust. And so then your backup trustee, whomever you've named, much like a power of attorney, can take over control of those assets and manage them in the event of your incapacity. Um, and it's a little bit more straightforward from the trust capacity versus the power of attorney. Because one of your questions was, um, well, what happens if a bank or a medical provider won't accept my power of attorney? On the financial side of things, trusts can streamline that control a lot more than using a power of attorney. Okay. We do find a lot of times that banks won't accept powers of attorney. Mm -hmm. I've also seen a lot of institutions not accept co-agents for financial decisions. Oh. Um, they just, I think it's a matter of the fact that their software, the bank software just doesn't have a way to list two agents. And mm -hmm. so then they say, well, we can't accept this because there's two agents mm -hmm. um, or there's, co even with co-trustees, I've run into issues with banks simply saying, no, one of you has to resign so that wow. um, we can just list one of you. Okay. I think it's also banking institutions not wanting to take liability for keeping track of what co-agents are doing. Mm -hmm. uh, because if you have co-agents, one person could potentially just go in and empty the account. And then the other agent says, well, why did you let them take all the money? <laughs> um, so if if one of your listeners has nominated co-agents um, a while back, they might want to think about changing that. Or if they want to utilize a trust structure, that certainly can provide some protective layers. Some states, since you have listeners from all 50 states, right. um, they're going to have different encounters as far as probate goes. Okay. So probate generally is just the procedure of gaining permission from the court to transfer a deceased party's assets to the rightful recipients. Okay. In some states, it's super easy. We're lucky here in Colorado, probate is super easy. Um, so a trust is a way to 
uh, go around or avoid the probate process because mm-hmm. your backup trustee just takes over the next day after death and says, well, now I'm the trustee. I have the trust document that says I'm the backup. Okay. Someone who's nominated as the executor in a will, they have no power simply because they've been named in the will. They have to present the will to the probate court, who then gives them a certificate basically saying, yes, you are the executor. So I do get calls from time to time from individuals who say, you know, I went to the bank, I took in the will, and I showed them the paragraph that says I'm the executor and they wouldn't give me the money. Well, that's because the only person who can actually confirm that you're the executor is the probate court. You Uh have to have that certificate. So don't be taking the will around, showing it to anyone. (laughs) Drop the will off at the court, submit your application indicating your willingness to accept that role and wait for the certificate back. Okay. Then you can go off to the bank. And so trusts allow families to sidestep that process. Mm -hmm. And in some states, like you know, the, the the bad states, California, New York, Florida, Texas, and I, I mean bad in the sense of they're bad for probate. Right. Uh, it's really expensive, and it takes a really long time in those states. Oh, wow. So okay. clients who own real estate in those states or live there, they want to avoid probate at all, all cost uh, because it is costly. So a lot right. of them will have trusts in order to augment the um, administrative process. Okay. So that makes sense if you want to just make sure that certain people or certain um, property or nonprofits that you want to give money to can get their money, right? Absolutely. Okay. Now, what else? Well, you had a a question kind of staying on that idea of incapacity and a loved one who maybe – maybe has a power of attorney, maybe doesn't have a power of attorney, but just has assumed the role of caretaking. Mm -hmm. And where is the line between their obligation to proactively do something or sit at the sideline and just kind of let their loved one live? Are they legally liable? Do they have a proactive obligation to step in and do anything? Or can they just kind of throw up their hands and say, not my problem. Um, be- and, and we're talking, if that person has gone through the trouble to get that power of attorney for finance and, and maybe, uh, health. Maybe even if they haven't. Okay. But uh, a loved one has assumed that role of checking in, taking care of them, mm-hmm. um, and they've been relying on them. And what if they just stop right. taking care of them? Because right. there are criminal statutes in a lot of states that if even if you don't have power of attorney, but you're a family member who's just kind of been there and then you stop mm-hmm. or you don't act in the best interest of your loved one, yes. um, there unfortunately can be criminal obligation or uh, charges, charges that yeah. could be brought against you for failing to act in your loved one's interest. So mm-hmm. before you do decide to be, become an agent, Um, and accept that role under a document, you should probably think long and hard and just make sure that you're willing and able to do what's necessary. And that might be very uncomfortable, as I think you know, and you've seen situations where (laughs) you want to make your loved one happy, but what might be best for them is definitely not going to make them happy. Right. Um, And we see... You know, where maybe um, Adult Protective Services has to come in, the police are involved. Right. And the next thing you know, they're saying, 
you need to make a decision for this person because if you don't, we're going to charge you with neglect. Right, right. Or worse. And certainly that's a scary thing. And I think for most of our our clients and most uh, people's loved ones, they're, they're doing the best they can. These are tough situations. Yes. No one said that caretaking for someone with um, it, dementia is an easy task. It's right. probably one of the most difficult jobs that you're ever going to take on. And if you have reached the point that you just can't do it, you need to say that you can't do it. And if you're power of attorney, you need to either resign and allow the next person in line to come in or you need to be proactive and document along the way the efforts that you've been taking and the potentially the resistance that you've met and why you haven't been able to do X, Y, or Z. Mm-hmm. So that if for some reason you are met with a, a charge of neglect, which again, that's going to be, a, I don't want to scare your listeners. This is not just, you know, the default of the government to step in and say, we think you're being neglectful. It really has to get a long ways down the road. But when you're in the middle of it, as a family member, you might not identify that you're that far down the road. So documenting the efforts that you've made and really seeking out the resources and utilizing them that you might have, like you mentioned, um, Mm -hmm. utilizing APS and um, other community resources. Well, the bottom line is becoming the power of attorney for health and finance is a serious issue. And it isn't, uh, you don't step into that role so you can collect inheritance from somebody and end up with all their property and their their financial wealth. Uh, it just doesn't work that way, unfortunately. Absolutely. And uh, But some people think it does. Right. And we do see, on uh, particularly even on the post-death side of things, um, you know, the, the family or one of the family members might come to us saying, hey, you know, we need to collect mom's assets. And then when we investigate, we realize that whomever was the power of attorney um, changed beneficiary designations to them or cha- added themselves just onto the bank account. So then it goes to them directly, <laughs> yes. all the while saying... Mom wanted it that way. Yes. Well, mom's not here to speak for herself anymore, so it becomes a he said, she said situation. So there are certain situations, though, where mom did want you to have it. You were the one there taking care of her. The other kids never came to visit. She wanted to, she genuinely wanted to reward you in that way. So you should get third parties involved, such as a, a council, to effectuate those transfers as opposed to going behind, kind of going behind everyone's back and making those changes yourself. Right, um, because that never turns out good. And it never looks good, yeah. Right. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back. Carillon at Bellevue Station is a residential community enriching the senior living experience. Our community full of grandeur and elegance is located near Cherry Hills, Colorado. We offer independent living and personalized assisted living services and an intimate, caring neighborhood for our residents with Alzheimer's and other dementias. A beautifully appointed spacious apartment, chef-prepared meals, transportation services, and a team devoted to your safety and wellness are what awaits you when you reside at Carillon at Bellevue Station. Call 720-440-8200 or visit carillon at bellevuestation.com for more information. Welcome back to Dementia Resilience with Jill Lorenz. All right, we're back, and I'm with Clara Lee Charlton, and I'm always glad to have you here. Thank you. Because you can answer those tough questions that families have. A lot of 
uh, trepidation about and just don't know sometimes what to do. I get a lot of calls. You've helped me with several families where they went in to a bank or to a doctor. Uh, I had this in my own family. And um, the doctor said, we're not going to share the information with you. Right. And that person had been years and years with some type of degenerative brain disease, some type of dementia disease. And Yet still they received pushback. So right. your thoughts on that? Yeah. So sometimes you'll have a power of attorney and you feel that it should be valid. And you're getting pushback from either a doctor or a financial institution. And oftentimes it can be for two reasons. One, the institution might not believe that this is a valid document. Um, that's where utilizing an, a, a professional to prepare that for you versus using a downloaded document can help you because mm-hmm. the attorney can frequently prepare a certification that says, yes, this is a valid document. It was executed here at our office. Um, and with financial institutions, that usually works perfectly fine. Okay. Um, when you download a form, you don't necessarily have that same support to enforce the Mm -hmm. document. On the medical side, it's a lot harder because you have a medical professional who's saying this person does not have dementia and yet you have been taking care of all of their needs for five years. Right. Um, In that case, unfortunately, you're likely going to be stuck going and getting the guardianship Mm -hmm. Um, at that point. And hopefully... You, you'll have enough evidence and everyone will be on the same page. You'll be more easily able to get that um, documentation. Um, also, especially here in Colorado, there are some statutes that provide for kind of sanctions against financial institutions if they won't accept certain documents and you have to go and um, obtain these certifications or, you know, conservatorship and incur costs Mm -hmm. in order to force them to accept that. So if you have similar statutes in your state, um, that can be helpful to know about and just kind of mention, not threaten, you know, you you get more with honey than with vinegar um, as far as, you know, getting help from institutions. But knowing whether or not your state has that can sometimes be helpful and help them kick it over maybe to their legal department to analyze as opposed to just, you know, the front desk teller saying, well, I don't think, you know, this document is valid or or whatever in their their Mm -hmm. opinion. And I just want to piggyback one thing on that. The doctor may believe you, but they may need more testing done. And sometimes we can't get that person in to see the doctor. So that causes problems. And to that, I just say, be persistent uh, document, 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 write down the things that you were seeing in the home, look at the behaviors that you're seeing, uh, talk about the ways that you've tried to redirect their care and so on and so forth. All could be helpful. Absolutely. Right. And the way to force the issue, you know, unfortunately, and I hate to keep coming back to guardianships and conservatorships because personally, I, I can't stand them and I hate hate it when clients have to go to that level. But that can force your loved one to take those evaluations ah. um, because it's a court-ordered evaluation. Mm-hmm. And that will potentially be able to to streamline that. Mm-hmm. Um, back on kind of the, the – just my one comment on the online documents. Um, these can 
I, I don't want people to shy away from them altogether because if the choice is download a document from online for your loved one to sign or have no document at all, do the online document. You know, at least it's something. Right. But unfortunately, when you're completing some of the documents, you might not understand that the document needed to be initialed instead of X's on the various selections. So, for example, Colorado's free statutory form um, for a financial power of attorney, you have to initial each of the powers you want to give, whereas a lot of people will get the form and they see little blanks and they go, XX, XX, these are the powers I want, and they don't realize they needed to initial. Um, or some documents require in some states, you know, witnesses and a notary or maybe just a notary. Mm-hmm. And I kind of almost liken the process to uh, changing my oil. I potentially could change my own oil and everything would turn out just fine and mm-hmm. I would save 50 bucks. Right. I could also buy the wrong filter, <laughs> put in the wrong oil, not tighten the filter enough, and all of a sudden my engine has blown up and I've got, you know, a $10,000 fix that I need to make. And unfortunately, that's usually the situation we run into with clients is they try to do something themselves. Um, and then we realized something was done wrong, but it's too late to fix it. Mm-hmm. And then we have to undergo a, a whole process that could be expensive in order to undo what was done. That That's a big thing with like quit claim deeds that mm. um, can be downloaded. So frequently the legal description isn't quite right or the, you know, the names aren't quite right or they didn't sign it appropriately. Right. And here they thought they fixed the problem they were trying to solve mm-hmm. and they've just all of a sudden created a balloon effect and right. it can be so costly and I I feel so badly when clients come to me and I have to inform them that unfortunately you know had they spent a couple hundred dollars to do it right they're avoiding thousands and thousands of dollars later right so back to maybe the care partners one of the questions we received was can I get paid for being a care partner Yeah. So, yes, the flat answer is yes. From a tax perspective, though, let's think through that. Mm -hmm. So let's say my spouse um, has developed dementia and I am his full-time caregiver. And I say, well, can I get paid for that? Absolutely. You have to include that, though, as income. So while your your loved one gets the deduction on their tax returns for having paid um, for medical services, and some of your services might be medical and some of them are just, you know, making meals, um, which would not be deductible. But you're having to include that as income. So you have to evaluate if it's the same household, for instance, spouses. You know, does it make sense to take a deduction on one side and then have to Include it as income on, on the, the other. other. <laughs> yeah. Probably not, because now you're paying, you know, employment taxes and all of that. Um, but let's say you're a child and you're working for mom and dad or taking care of mom um, on a full time basis. You absolutely should have some understanding regarding compensation or lack thereof as well. Because a lot of times a, a child will move in and say, oh, I, I, don't worry, siblings. I, you know, I needed to get out of the state and, and, you know, leave my situation. So moving in with mom is great for me and I'm able to provide her with some some care. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, it, and that seems to work usually for a period of time. And then... 
resentment starts. Right. Um, you know, they're giving up their life for years and years and years. And then mom passes away and there is a sense of entitlement to something. And then when all the children are treated equally, um, that one child who may have given up a lot uh, feels resentment towards their siblings. and But the siblings, they you know, they're looking at it the other way. They say, oh, well, they got free rent and, you know, t- for taking care of mom. So right. it's overall even Steven. <laughs> <laughs> so I think just being open as a family when uh, a loved one is going to move in or provide the majority of the caretaking, just being open and maybe even having a little agreement among the family members that says, this is what I'm going to do. And at certain stages, um, I might be compensated now, or maybe mom can't afford to compensate me now. She's only getting social security. The only value that's there is her house that's paid off, which we're both living in. So the siblings can agree perhaps that um, the caretaking uh, sibling keeps track of of their time um, and then they'll be compensated in some way after mom's gone and the house can be sold when funds are actually available. But just having those open conversations while everyone's alive and while people can back out, you know, if they don't like the deal, then fine, don't take care of mom. You're you're not forced into servitude here. Mm -hmm. Um, There are other options and maybe other family members need to step up. But right. if you're going to be compensated on a regular basis, um, you certainly uh, need to be reporting that for income tax purposes. Um, you might not be a family member, though. Maybe you're going to hire, you know, a, a friend to to take care of you, or maybe you're hiring agencies. Anyone that you are paying, if there are dollars going out the door, uh, you as the incapacitated person or the person who needs help, those costs can be deducted on your tax return if those services are being rendered because of your medical condition. Okay. Does that person have to be uh, a CNA or something like that? Can it just be a family friend? They do friend? not. It could be a family friend okay. um, or, or you know, even a family member right. that's compensated. And you may deduct that if they are rendering services due to your medical condition. Okay. Um, sometimes it's also nice if the family can fix up their house. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe mom would have to go to assisted living unless we put in one of those, um, what are they, the the chairs that go up the stairs. Oh, right. Yeah, the, the, cha- lift. the stair lift. Right. Yes. Um, well, those are expensive. Oh, yeah, Very they are. expensive. But investing, I, I don't know, $20,000 in a stair lift. I don't know if they're that much, but they very well could be. Um, investing that is going to save us from having to spend 10000 a month for mom to live in assisted living because her home maybe just doesn't have main level living. Right. Um, so that absolutely, improvements that you make to the home for the primary purpose of addressing a medical condition mm-hmm. are absolutely deductible. Now, they are deductible as a medical expense. So you ha- it's, you're going to have to be able to itemize for it to make, for it to be able to be counted. Um, and the standard deduction for single people is around 12000 for a married couple around 24000 mm-hmm. So you have to spend at least that much in addition to all the other items like charitable deductions and property taxes and things like that. Okay. Um, so, you know, if you don't really have big expenses there, but you, I don't know, installed those, uh, what are they, the the items on the 
doorknob thing. The doorknob oh, the child co- yes, safety locks. Yes. Yeah. And, okay, those are five, ten bucks. I don't know. It don't, adds up. I would, if you're just doing that, then don't worry about keeping that receipt. But if you're doing a lot of those different items, um, security systems. A lot of times you wouldn't otherwise have a security system but for making sure that mom's not wandering around in the middle of the night. Right. That could absolutely be a qualifying item um, if these expenses are being um, spent or these costs are being incurred Mm -hmm. because of your loved one's medical condition. Gotcha. What other tax things can you think of that people will ask about? Well, a big one is living in a care community. Right. Um, Now, for one, that is expensive. And some people just move to care communities because they say, we don't need a 4,000-square-foot home anymore. Our family, you know, has all moved away. Uh, We want somebody to shovel the walk for us. We want to have the option to go down the hall for our meals and not to have to worry about cooking. We like the community. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're just moving in because you want to live somewhere where things are taken care of for you, those costs are not deductible. Right. But if you move to a care community because you um, keep forgetting to take your medications and you uh, are lapsing into, I I don't know, like having seizures or having um, bouts where you've fallen and you can't get up Mm -hmm. um, and you move to the community to address and make sure that you have support around you due to your medical condition, your entire room and board can be deductible. So let me ask you this. I have a client who just moved into... uh, a continuum of care place okay. where they have apartments, mm-hmm. they have uh, assisted living, and they have memory care. Okay. But the reason she moved is because her husband died, mm. and she has a diagnosis of early-stage dementia. Mm. She's in the part of the area where she doesn't need to be in the assisted living yet because she's okay. still active and can think on her own, mm-hmm. but she needs to be there for her safety and not driving anymore and things like that. Yeah. Absolutely. Does that fall into that category? I would absolutely claim her expenses for as a deduction. Okay. um, Because the reason she moved there um, was due to her medical condition. If she didn't have dementia and she wasn't worried that she was going to drive somewhere and forget where she is and be lost, Mm -hmm. um, she would still be living at home. Right. Because it's expensive. It is. It's like $4,000 a month. Absolutely. So over a year, that's a $48,000 deduction. Right. Um, There are some haircuts on those deductions that are taken just based on your income. But still, um, you need to keep that in mind and tell your tax preparer. Because I find so often that preparers don't remember that little nuance of Mm -hmm. the tax code. And for some preparers, you know, they might not feel comfortable making that leap of saying, well, okay, but she's not really sick today, you know? Right. So certainly um, seeking out and interviewing preparers if if, um, that's something that's going to come up in your life or talking to them or asking them to be educated on the topic. Mm -hmm. Um, Because I think, you know, as professionals, we kind of get used to serving a similar clientele all the time. And then maybe we haven't had a client that's been paying assisted living before. Um, So just reminding them, like, 
to uh, take advantage of all the possible deductions that are mm-hmm. available because this is costly. Yeah, and I have several clients like that who have moved for that reason. Yeah. But they're in the early stage, but they need somebody to come in and clean for them. They need, you know, some cueing. Um, they're having trouble remembering. Mm-hmm. It's becoming it became significant and that's why the family wanted them in a place where they could sort of be contained and be able to walk around on the grounds and not get lost and and not have to drive anymore and all those kinds of things so i want there to be some benefit for people absolutely absolutely and you know nothing is going to be a hundred percent cut and dry for every situation so it's going to be kind of you know like you say a continuum of deductible or not deductible and somewhere in the middle we switch over depending on the factors Um, but certainly something to raise to your preparer or if you prepare your own returns make sure that you're aware of of this potential deduction okay um, because that's super valuable okay um while we're while we're on the topic of care communities Mm -hmm. i I hate to be switching to kind of a negative side because we've been talking about positive deductions (laughs) but there can be negative things that happen in care communities as you were mentioning Mm -hmm. um about you know keeping deposits or you know they enroll you saying oh yeah you're independent no problem it'll be this cost and you'll probably be at that level for years and years um and then like the next month they tell you oh hold on we have to upgrade you a level and that's gonna be another two thousand dollars a month what can you do and this, uh, this really certainly isn't like legal advice, I don't think. I mean, there's legal things you can do, but I think it's more practical advice right. for clients to, as they're moving into places, get as much as they can in writing. If they're making a deposit for certain things and they've been told that they can have that refunded, um, you know the spiel that some of oh, these yeah. places make. They say, oh, you make the deposit, but, you know, if you don't like it after a month, like, you'll get your deposit back. And that's what the salesperson tells them. Mm-hmm. Then they get there. They don't like it. They want to leave. And they say, oh, well, no, you signed the document that said that that's non-refundable. Mm-hmm. And you say, yeah, but I was talking to, you know, Christy in the sales office who said I could get it back. If you are relying on some of these promises, um, absolutely try to get that in writing before you even move in. One of the things that my listeners tell me is they like that my information is practical. So I want to give a scenario to that. Perfect. So um, I had a client who had moved into a community. She just wasn't uh, completely physically well, but not too much going on from the mental incapacity okay. department. And uh, suddenly uh, they had mentioned um, that her her um, level of care had changed because she got sick. She got a cold. Hmm. She thought she might have had COVID, oh right? So she stayed in her room and wanted her meals brought down to her. Yeah. Well, in that fine writing, it was $100 per meal to have somebody, the concierge, bring it to her. Oh, my gosh. So when she was sick over a two-week period for three times a day, she was charged $300, which added up. I mean, that's, (laughs) you know. She should have been doing Uber Eats. Come on. (laughs) Right? Yeah. But she didn't know. Of course. She just thought they were nice bringing her food. Yeah. Right? And then, you know, you get these little things. So just as you said, 
Look at that fine print. Look at it the fine matters. print. Yeah, unfortunately, and I know those packets can be, you know, 30, 40 pages long, and you say, right. well, I don't have time to look at this. Right. You know, get make sure you get, get your support system involved. If you have kids and you're moving into one of these places, um, don't don't be proud. I know a lot of parents are proud, and they say, well, I can do this myself. And you can, but we can't all catch everything. So right. employ your support system. Have everybody take a few pages mm-hmm. and, you know, highlight a few items where you say, oh, well, we didn't know about that. And it might not be a make or break for the move into the community, but you might just say, hey, mom, like, don't ask for it to be delivered unless it's like an absolute emergency. And we'll try to come up with some alternatives just because that does happen to be something that is in, um, you know, the, the the contract. I think it's a good idea just after about a month, after every month for about four or five months after they move in, check their billing system. Oh, absolutely. And see what they're being charged for because it is um, really hard for people to pay attention to things like that. Oh, yeah. absolutely. It can be really tough. And, um, you know, from a legal perspective, if, if you're in, if they are in line with their contract, um, well, there's not a whole heck of a lot you can do. But... You can always take to social medias and other areas. I mean, I know when when your bags get lost on a flight and you post a post about, geez, Southwest just lost my bag. I mean, they get on that and they respond quickly. So sometimes just the public pressure of needing to maintain Um, you know, that public presence can sometimes alleviate some of those situations and perhaps the community will make it right, particularly like in your situation where you say, hey, this woman had just moved in. She didn't want to be spreading COVID all over the community. And so she was doing the responsible thing by requesting her meals to be delivered. Right. Um, And then she gets her first bill and she's got an extra, you know, (laughs) $3,000 delivery fees. Hey, I'll I'll drive her meal down there for that. <laughs> <laughs> so we're we're getting down to about run out of time. Uh, what other important things do you think that we need to discuss before we well, sign you, off? You know, I, I think it just is always important to keep in mind that there are resources out there. You don't have to do this alone. Um, and I think when clients or their loved ones try to do it alone, that's when trouble starts. So reach out. Um, there, You have an amazing support group, I know, that exists that has so many great resources that are available to certain yeah. um, certain clients, particularly in the, the Denver area. Um, and so reaching out for resources like that, reaching out to your family, your friends, uh, reaching out to other professionals. You don't have to do this alone. Right. So don't feel like you have to. Don't feel like you've got to try to scour the internet to find the answers because there are resources. And, you know, I can just say from from our relationship, wow, how many times have we called each other for help about, all you know, the time. all the time. I call Jill and I'm like, hey, I have a client with this situation. Hey, they're being moved into this community. What right. do you think about this community? Yes. And, and you've been so wonderful and generous. Well, right back time. at you because I don't know how many of my clients have come to you for help with wills and trusts and things like that. And also uh, just we had somebody that that her husband was supposed to move into a community. They never followed up on everything. She paid a deposit and then they said, oh, yeah, he can have a room at one of our places, but it's 45 minutes west of us, which was already 45 minutes 
I remember west of where that. she lived. And we had to have that court of public opinion uh, with the news going yes. out and saying, are you not going to give this lady back her money? I know. But um, I just I love that today we're talking about things that we drill down on that our clients have asked us and needed help with. And, you know, uh, over the years, I've had you come in and just talk about all tax implications and things like this. But today, I think we really have gotten kind of deep on some of the real questions we get from people and real scenarios that's going to be helpful to somebody out there. Absolutely. No matter where you live, we have. And, and I think Clara Lee said it best. Just look and find out what the resources are in your area. Find a, a trusted attorney through a family or or somebody you know. Um, and even your state and local offices sometimes, if you don't have money, they can have free lawyer help, absolutely. legal help, and things like that. Because it matters. Yes, absolutely. We need. We all need help. So you're not in this alone. If you're a caregiver, you're, you're not alone. You gotta, don't have to come up with all the answers yourself. Yeah. Well, you have been incredibly helpful to me over the years. And I'm going to put Clara Lee's information on this post. But if you call her, she will charge you. (laughs) She's not going to give free legal advice. If you have something that you just want an answer to, just that something is simple, and you can write just a question, uh, she'll look it over and let you know whether or not it's something she can just answer, right? Exactly. I'm always uh, willing to try to get you at least headed in the right direction or tell you whether you you are are on the right path already. Um, So yeah, I appreciate you putting that contact information. If I can ever be of assistance, even just to answer a few questions to get people in, in, going on the right path. That's what it's all about. Absolutely. Well, come back again next year. Thank you. <laughs> I love having you on the show. And Clara Lee Charlton, you are my hero. Oh, thank you, Jill. I love you. All right, listeners, we will see you next week on Dementia Resilience with Jill Lorenz. You've been listening to Dementia Resilience with Jill Lorenz. To learn more about her resources, services, classes, or to book speaking engagements, visit Jill's website at summitresiliencetraining.com. A new podcast drops every Tuesday, so join us as we learn more about dementias, resilience, and overcoming obstacles to find a positive outcome. Dementia Resilience with Jill Lorenz can be found on your favorite podcast provider. Please subscribe and give us a five-star rating. Musical and technical support provided by Brian Hunter. See you next week.